Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Join us on our journey into the past, the present, and the future as we explore the relationship between technology and humanity. Together, we are going to find out what it means to live in a society where everything is connected and the only constant is change. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Sean, story time. It is story time, and uh, I think it's really story time. We're going to dig back into the, well, it's always story time. It is the stories about stories. <laughs> you make me think, like, honestly, we, maybe we exaggerated with the story time thing, but no, it's not. I mean, everything is a story. Even if you tell, you know, you talk to your parents on the phone, it's still you're telling them stories. Our life is made of stories, and some as we like to say, are better than others, more inspiring, and maybe more different. And this one, it's definitely different. Definitely different. And uh, we can say that with confidence, because we've already spoken with our guest, Deb Radcliffe. Deb, thanks for joining again. Thank you for having me. Of course. So we kind of Sean, we kind of did a little teaser about her story, her book. But there is more to that. It's not just the book. There is an entire life that is a story before that happened. And I think today we got more time and we're going to dig into that, Sean. Let's do that. So, so Deb, you've had a, a long career in information security and, uh, you had, had some ideas and you, and you did some things and we want to hear how you got started. Now let's, let's go back to the beginning. Um, and you can go back as far as you like. Sometimes I say, I, I tell a story from when I was hatched. <laughs> <laughs> so anything you think, uh, folks would like to know to help set the stage for what you're doing now and, and the great work you're doing with the book. Thanks, Sean. I think maybe I will start when I was hatched or very close to it. How about high school? In high school, I had English teachers challenging my papers because they didn't like my points of view. A uh, second year English teacher was giving me B plus grades when I was making straight A's and she gave me a B plus semester grade. And I challenged her in the classroom to say why. And she said, because you're better than an A writer. I want to see you do better work and I'll give you an A next semester. She says, you can write A papers in your in your sleep. I want to see what you can really do. And 
at the end of that year, her name was Mrs. Northern. She asked me, um, you know, if I would become a writer when I grew up. And if I didn't, she would climb out of her grave and find me and shake me until I become a writer. So I took my high school work day at the Las Gatas Times Observer. I was super excited. I got to write a little article. They put my name on it. It was literally just listing where the high school graduations were in the Bay Area at the time. But hey, it was my name in a news paper with a little you know, short little article underneath it uh, that really got me hooked on journalism. Uh, but then I went back to work uh, to make money. I went straight into word processing at a company called Ford Aerospace. They did a lot of satellites at the time. Um, and for two years, I worked there, was able to learn how to type really fast, which was great because as a writer, keeping up with people while you're writing your notes is really important. So I can almost keep up with the person talking. There'll be typos and whatnot, but that sort of all prepared me. And because I was in tech pubs, Sometimes I feel like I blew it because the editor, the head of the editing department came to me and she said, you're always fixing our mistakes. We want you to work for us. And I said, why would I want to edit papers all day long? And so I had to go back to college, get my journalism degree while I had was having my babies and married and everything. And before I even fully graduated college, I was working for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat part time. And I'd already worked for the San Jose Mercury News part time. And when I got to the San Jose, uh, Santa Rosa Press Democrat, I was asked to work um, um, in email. An editor sent out a note saying that they needed they had a friend who needed help working on a book about um, computers, no computer knowledge necessary. So I called the guy. He was John Littman, and he was literally in the throes of researching what was going to be a best-selling book about Kevin Mitnick and his life on the run. And from that point on, I was hooked. And that's when I had my first scary experience. I couldn't understand why Littman was so paranoid. He was looking over his shoulder. We met at a public place for lunch to discuss the opportunity for me to work for him. And he was totally paranoid, looking over his shoulder. Luckily, it was way before cell phones, so we didn't have to worry about our own devices spying on us. But he, was, he thought the feds were in that restaurant watching him. And that's because Mitnick was contacting him while he was on the run from the FBI through this weird arrangement where he would call, Mitnick would call Littman at any hour, ring twice, hang up. That was Littman's cue to go get a notepad and a pen and go down to a payphone, wait for another call, pick up that call and start taking notes. That was their way of trying to avoid FBI monitoring them. Um, within 12 hours of taking that assignment, Kevin Mitnick's friends found my unlisted number in Northern California. Littman did not give him my number, just my name. I was married at the time, so I was Deborah Kerr at the time. And of course, they started dial calling us at all hours and driving my husband nuts. So I had to unplug the phones, and I called Littman the next day and said I wasn't sure I wanted the assignment. If they could get into my house that easily, why on earth would I want to do this? I've got three little kids. So he called all Kevin Mitnick's buddies that he was working with and said, just lay off. She's sheep to the slaughter. She knows nothing about security. There is no there is no sport in going after someone as innocent as Deborah uh, at the time. So from that point on, I was hooked. I knew that cyber was going to be bad. I knew that these dial-up modems that Mitnick's friends were using um, were just the beginning. Pretty soon there were going to be business connections and home connections direct to the internet. And what was that going to look like? So in 1996, I got my first article sold to Byte Magazine. 
and the title was Barbarians at the Firewall. And I had to hang up the phone and call Microsoft and say, what's a firewall? But I knew that if it was security technology, Kevin Mitnick and his friends could get through it. So that was my hypothesis when I went in to write the article. Mm -hmm. When I was done, the FBI's brand new cyber field office in San Francisco called me to see if they could use it to train their new cyber agents. And that was the beginning of my career. Um, most of my sources back then were gray hat and white hat hackers and gray hat. I consider Kevin Mitnick a gray hat. I don't consider him a black hat. And the reason is, is he was not financially um, making money off of what he was doing. He was completely just a curious guy. He didn't mind trespassing and breaking those kind of laws to learn things, but it, it, all the really bad stuff that was happening, his friends were doing. And it, the feds were pinning everything on him at the time, and they didn't understand cyber at all, going to some of these um, court cases where Kevin Polson, Marie, I don't know if you guys know who he is, but he moved on to Wired after he got done with his jail time. He was being used as another example. So Kevin Mitnick and Kevin Polson were the two poster children for the FBI at the time. And um, I just remember this white haired guy with age spots on his hand, hammering down the gavel again and saying, we will postpone this for another three months and watching Kevin Polson's head dropped. And he was trying not to show everybody that he was crying again. They held both these guys for almost four years without a trial. And that's because they did understand cyber. Deb, let me let me ask you something. And I'm going to ask a question pretending to be part of the audience. You are okay. at the time you, you were what they called a, a, a beat reporter, right? Like a yes. beat journalism. And I, I found it like a really interesting categories that I don't think we're using much lately. I don't think we even hear about that. I'd like to know a little bit what the definition of that is and why why at the time it was important to be that kind of reporter. Yes, I forged my own role at the time as what I'd like to call the first cybercrime beat reporter. And I made my audience the business audience instead of the San Jose Mercury News audience because they were the first to put the internet into their, their organizations and start trying to process business over the internet. Um, the beat... I called cybercrime. Uh, I didn't know what else to call it. In fact, I even have a blog from way back then that I still post to called Online Crime Bites, and it's B-Y-T-E-S, um, because that was meant for the average Joe who was getting ripped off on their new computer and then eventually on their new smartphone and whatnot. But I felt that it, I treated it like a regular journalist beat. I was, you know, a newspaper reporter coming into this. And we all had beats as a newspaper reporter. I had local beats back then. I had the police beat. And to me, the cyber crime beat was kind of a combination of the police beat, the crime beat, and cyber all together. So I wrapped them all together. The hardest part was finding sources in the early days. The only and the, sources and the beat, I had were gray hats. The beat is pretty much a niche, right? Like you're like, this is the topic and, and yes. you follow that topic beat after beat. Yes. That's what it is. I, I find yes, it I even start, fascinating. I even had a hack of the month column for Computer World way back then. And now it's hack of the millisecond. But I remember a few times being a little bit hard up to find a new hack. That's how long ago it was. Now it's like I would be overwhelmed trying to keep up with every hack. 
But yeah, the beat was new and a lot of the magazines were saying, why do I care? When I was pounding on their doors saying, you want me to write for you because, and eventually they started getting it. And I remember once when I was writing for software magazine, they did a special issue on security. I wrote the whole issue the whole issue. I remember crying. I was so tired and calling my boss and he says, Oh, Deborah, what's wrong now? And I'm like, don't you patronize me. And I hung up on him again. And then I get a call. We're going to give you a couple extra thousand dollars this month. We realized you worked really hard. And I'm like, you're kidding, right? You know, and it went on because there weren't other writers who got it back then. There were just a couple starting to dip their toe in the water. Um, Let's John talk about Whitman. that then. Let's talk about yeah. that. Deb. Sorry to, sorry to cut you there. No, but, no worries. I mean, how did you learn? Was it a passion for technology? Was it a passion for crime? Was it a passion for law enforcement? Was it the 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 adrenaline that came with trying to explore what was going on? I mean, it's one thing to see something happening, another thing to raise awareness for it, but then another yet to actually describe what's happening in detail enough that businesses can understand and then yeah. take action from, right? So how did you nurture that and make that all come together? Well, a lot of it was pounding on magazine doors, finding the magazines that would even take these kind of articles. Like I said, my first one went into Byte. Later, I got hired as the security writer for Software Magazine, a terrible publication, by the way, um, in terms of the way they treated their writers. I was called a shitty writer. And I mean, they were constantly really beating up on me. And as a single mom, that was really hard. I needed the money on three little kids. I had to pay the bills, you know. But I felt that my passion was more for the crime side and applying it to cyber as far as learning how to express this to IT people and IT managers and business managers. That was the brain bleed part. I called the first five years of my career. It was like I had I was getting an engineering degree at the same time I was writing these articles. And I do not claim to be a naturally technical person Although in some previous jobs, I did a little coding and things as secretary and stuff. So I kind of got it, but I was not an expert at tech at all. And so writing stories about database security, okay, call Oracle. How does a database work? You know, what's a row? What's a column? What's a table? Where can bad things happen? It took a lot of uh, brain education on the engineering side of this because if i didn't get how it worked i couldn't tell the rest of the world how it worked if i made a mistake i would have three thousand to seven thousand emails from my technical readers saying you blew it and i remember once a source told me that you could get into napster do you guys remember napster and you could use that to actually sideways explore into spreadsheets and other things. And he was in San Francisco. I was in Santa Rosa. It was a two hour drive, an hour drive. And I kept saying, I will come down. You need to show me this hack. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I swear it works. I've got the proof here. Look, I saw the spreadsheet. I saw this data. So I finally called a couple of police agencies and they said they've heard it's possible. So I wrote the story. Turns out it wasn't possible. I got completely creamed on that article, but I threw my source under the bus for that because he knew that I needed actual data and he wasn't giving it to me. He knew that I was running late on a hack of the month column and I had to get something out. So when I wrote my correction, I said, you're right, I blew it. My source said blah, but then he actually never finished the hack. He only got halfway through. And so they started hacking him. 
he had, he called me up. I had to take off my email. I had to change my email account. I had to do this. I had to do that. And I said, that's what happens when you lie to geeks. They will come after you. And I've never had a response like that to an article since because I've just been super careful about all the fact checking I do. Um, the passion for technology, it came in later after I got comfortable with it. But for the first five years, I hated technology. I hated having to learn it. I hated having to understand at an engineering level what is going on. I am a creative person, but I learned it. And now it's, oh, new technology. Um, they're still going to find a way to beat it. Uh, you know, cryptocurrency, let's see how we can look at that, you know, um, and, and attack that. Whatever's new. I can now translate in my personal engineering brain how that can be hacked. And that's sort of where I took my career and went forward from that Byte Magazine article and really haven't looked back. It's phenomenal. And and you've used the word hack. I think we have as well a couple times in this conversation already. It's a very common term slash label used these mm -hmm. days. And uh, there are hackers, they, they do hacking, there's hacktivism, uh, mm -hmm. but then there's also cyber crime. And, and you, said, you said Mitnick is kind of in that gray area where, where where's the line, right? Is he a hacker yeah. or is a cyber criminal? So I'm wondering your view of the term and label, um, and as far back as you can see, has it been used appropriately? Is it being used inappropriately? Kind of, what's your view on the term and the label? I think you're going to agree with me because you've been in it as long as I have, you guys. But I believe that hackers are curiosity, people full of curiosity who are learning technology. Um, they are trying to break it. They, if you look up the dictionary term for hackers, they, they aren't even applied directly to technology. They hack anything that can be broken. Why? They want to find the weakness. Then they want to figure out how to uh, build it back up again so that weakness is no longer a weakness. To me, that is a hacker. Some of them are gray hats. They'll go onto someone else's personal server to find the weakness. Most of them are white hats where they try to use a controlled environment to do their testing. Um, and then we've got bounties, bug bounties. What are those? Those are hackers actually being paid now to go in and find weaknesses. So technology companies and businesses are getting the value of the white and the gray hats. Black hats, I don't even want to dignify them with the term hacker. They are criminals. They are stealing identities, loading ransomware. They have no honor. They are wrecking hospitals where personal care is needed for people to survive. People have died now from ransomware. They are going after schools and very important infrastructure organizations. Um, and they've moved from being um, like there's there's good guy hacktivists who are trying to show us things that are wrong. There's bad guys who are working for foreign governments and, and criminal entities. Most of them have been recruited. There are some countries like Russia, where if you show any sign of technical skill at all, you're not only recruited, your family is threatened if you don't comply. So there is a lot of levels, but anybody who's literally stealing, harming others, um, stealing data uh, you know, for foreign entities, uh, launching ransomware for money, any of those guys are flat out criminals, bad guys, dirty doers. Uh, they should all go to jail. They should all be caught. I hate them all. 
And a lot of them hate I, I me. think you've been pretty clear. And uh, for the people that are listening to the podcast, I've been noting, and my neck kind of hurts right now because I've been noting the whole time. I totally <laughs> agree with you. So I, I have a question, and then we, we jump into your, your next uh, move, which is the book, which we're going to get there. But I, I want your opinion because you've been a journalist. You have been one of the first covering cybersecurity, hacking, hacktivism, your very strong opinion on the difference, as you just said, between cyber criminal and, and hacking. And we have been fighting this fight for since when we started ITSP Magazine, pretty much. Hacking is How a mindset. Was that? Uh, six years ago. So, Good. Okay. yeah. That's pretty been a while. And yep. so the, the question is this, and we had a few conversations about this, but I want to know from you, why mass media, non-specialized, and sometimes even specialized magazine and publication, they, they, they cross the line all the time calling mm. it's a hack, right? But yeah. why are we portraying as like the media, the, the the journalists that are not specialized, like you, or they're not taking a stance pro hackers. Why are we still not delimitating this big difference that you just did very clearly? I mean, it's hard for me to understand. How can you just fuck it up? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's actually gotten worse over time. In the beginning, I was yeah. able to keep that message clear and distinct, and as more and more criminal acts are conducted over cyber. I think it's just easier for journalists who don't know just to call them all hackers. Um, they are hacking, but they're hacking for criminal gain. So there's a difference there. But what surprises me too, like when you go to the recent solar winds attack, which I wrote a in-depth white paper on recently, is just how many hours the bad guys put in to making these multi-stage attack patterns that can start very low and slow and build on themselves and and hide when they know they're being watched and erase themselves and come back and all these different things manipulate the dns system to to persist and to grow their malware package inside an organization using the supply chain now starting with an orion build server how did they get to that? There were so many steps involved. Why can't these guys work for the good side? Well, because crime pays, right? Crime is a business. I mean, look at mafia yeah. or other things. <laughs> it's a crime. It's a business. It's, it's true. Are they making what IT administrators are making out in the real world, or are they making 10 times as much? Uh, that would be I, my I question. would say they make more. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. That's yeah. my guess, but well, it's probably like any other, right? The yeah. People at the top make a ton, and yeah, and then the uh, and the, the people developing bees. the attack patterns are probably not making as much. They may only be making what an administrator makes. And some people they just decided to be the villain, and it's more natural to them. So villains and heroes. Which Sean, are you? let's get in the book. <laughs> let's talk about Vill a book: villains <laughs> and heroes, good versus evil. Uh, the world against the world. Uh, Deb, you, you've written the first in your trilogy, Breaking Bad Rooms, Information is Power. Um, quickly tell us the premise of the story. And then perhaps as you're doing that, connect it to what you've done in your own personal life and career and how that helps shape 
this trilogy? Excellent question. So the, the premise of the book is Globecom takes over the world through human chip implants and hackers rise up against Globecom. A bunch of them have to end up living off grid um, because they do not want to take the human chip implants. But one of them is actually embedded in China Telecom, which is a, a, a large portion. They're in the, they started in China Telecom and became the CISO for the China hub of Globecom. And he's actually an embedded spy. And he is working with the good guy hacker clans. We're calling them the freedom hackers um, to help uh, seed them with uh, inside information on the Globecom network because the hackers' attempts are not getting to um, shut down this network and their data centers. There's just too extensive. It's like, how do you break the internet, right? Um, so I had to really look at how you would do that if Globecom owned the chips, the network, and the data centers. And so I realized that it had to start out with an action scene where they are actually doing a global attack on all the data centers simultaneously around the world. It took them 17 years to build this up um, and get ready to do this and have it succeed. Um, it's uh, it, To tell the story personally, I had to create characters and the characters come out of people I've met in the industry, most of them. Some of them, like the lead, Cyanthia, she's sort of a conglomerate of a whole bunch of characters. She started out as Cindy Frank at the Department of Defense as a forensics investigator, um, which was lovely because I spent so much time there on a tour. I could describe the evidence locker where she turned in her evidence and the and the um, server room where they were, you know, gazillion terabytes of data were being processed all at the same time for evidentiary processing and the digital backups and things that they did there, which was really nice. But she had she's sort of the person who tells the story throughout. She starts out in the DOD. She is having a relationship with their spy that's embedded in China Telecom. And they're trying to get her to take her human chip implant so that she can come to work because within a month, she's not going to be able to enter through the, the work doors anymore, access her computing assets. Um, she agrees to, but then she doesn't. And she leaves a little message on her computer for all the people at the DOD to see when she disappears. And it's a takeoff on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's so long and thanks for all the fish. And it's spelled P-H-I-S-H. And then she goes off and lives off grid. And then it had the story had to split and people are asking me, how did you write it that way? It must have been really hard. And it was really hard. Um, I knew that people were going to want to know right away. Well, if you take down the network that's supporting everything and the data center that's validating your insurance information and everything else, isn't that going to cause chaos? Hell yeah, it's going to cause chaos. So present day track is showing the chaos as they're trying to rush Cyanthia to a hospital after she got shot in the back in Operation Backbone. And yes, all of this is sort of meant to be ironic and come together like this. Um, and then I had to do a backtrack and start back 17 years ago when she was working at the DOD, pregnant with the spy's child, doesn't want to chip her kid, doesn't want to go off, uh, doesn't want to chip herself. So she decides to go off grid. And luckily the spy that she's with, I mean, the reason he was recruited to work at the, for the DOD was because he got busted hacking them and he had two choices and he was such a good hacker. He had assets in 
property all over the place no one knew about. So he was able to set her up and in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And then it took her 17 years of raising family and doing all these different things and growing her hacker clan and intervening with other hacker clans to help this global attack on Globecom actually happen. And so every chapter from the first chapter to the last chapter is split present day, 17 years ago, present day, 12 years ago, present day, 10 years ago, until you get all the way through both stories. How did she become who she was? Why did she do what she's doing? Oh, and what happened after they blew up Globecom? And all of that without panicking. I'm going to reference to the hitchhiker again. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't I didn't put button. the don't panic. You didn't put yeah, the don't right. panic button. <laughs> I didn't put that. I just put, I put the um, dolphins swimming up to the sky with so long and thanks for all the fish. And uh, that's yeah. when all her fellow technologists at the DOD knew she was right. never coming back. Right. Well, it's so. it sounds a very intricate uh, story already. So uh, I was afraid you were going to give it all up. And then I realized, no, I just... Very intricate. So you, which part is she going to give up? I know. I, I, just, I, I, just I just want to, at this point, it. I need to know. I need to read it. So exactly. uh, you have to read it. It's a thriller. People are telling me that it's a page turner. And I'm surprised at how short it came out when it published. It was like 200 pages. Hmm. Um, so it's a thin little book, but it tells the whole story. And I feel that it should be a TV series and it reads like a TV series. It starts with a shoot 'em up in a drone war outside of Globecom's. Um, you know, Oak Ridge Computing Center, all the major computing centers that we consider today where all the R&D is going on and all the high-powered computing is going on, they've all been taken over by Globcom, acquired, merged, <laughs> however you want to look at it. And so these people are attacking all of those powerful data centers at the same time in the beginning of the book. So, no, yeah, and then so what happens Deb, later? Uh, yeah. Sorry, Deb, I, I would presume... The first order of business: write something that is entertaining, gripping, yes. for people to read it, pay, turn the pages. But I'm yep. wondering how much of your journalist brain plugs into this, in terms of how you tell the story, who you're telling it to, how you translate, how something works. Is there any educational? element i mean even the even the title information is power right kind of suggests mm -hmm. that in order to have power you have to have information and information gives you knowledge so yeah your, your role of journalism in this so information is power is the first of a hacker creed that was taught to me in um, hope 2000 conference in new york so the whole hacker creed is information is power information should be free and out of chaos comes order. And so those are the subtitles of three books. Uh, the education aspect is show it, don't tell it. Don't spend too long describing the tech. I love Neil Stevenson, but he gets very bogged down in describing the tech and he can do five chapters of just describing how to do something in space, for example. I felt that I needed to show them doing this stuff but don't spend a lot of time describing how they did it. I did a lot of technical fact checking. I said, don't go into, this is not a white paper on how to 
break Globecom. This is an action series showing that they did break Globecom. I need you to check and make sure that everything I put in here is accurate, but we do not need to elaborate. And so I went through the technology rather quickly um, just to show in really serious layman's terms what they're doing, but not um, extremely in depth, for example, when the servers are going to catch fire because they overheated the electronics because they were able to get down to the hardware layer. That's pretty much how I explained it. I didn't go any deeper than that because I want I don't want to turn off the average Joe reader, anybody who likes a thriller, anybody who likes a romance. She's got two husbands at the same time, by the way. Um, you know, anybody who likes characters. I felt that the tech is sort of the backdrop, but the characters are going to be what people come back to read more and more about. So I had to really build the characters. I love this entire story. I, I love when we take... I'm a big fiction fan, but more than fiction, fantasy and sci-fi. And but but you always need to make it grounded, even if you get something and you talk about magic, magic sword and wands and stuff like that and rings, there is still need to be a reference to reality. And the reality of today is definitely not the the talking one from back in the days that our reality is technology. So I really love the idea that you're delivering this message. And to end this conversation, which I don't want it to end, but maybe there will be more. What What is the message that you really want to get out with this trilogy? Which, by the way, it is the Hacker trilogy. So we're going to connect to that again to finish this conversation. So what's the core message that you really want people to get out of this? I really believe the day will come where we're all being asked to take a human chip implant. I mean, it's just too inconvenient to remember all our passwords. Passwords don't work anyway. Um, it's too dicey out there in cyber. Too many people are getting hacked, ransomware is rampant. All the things we talked about at the beginning of this conversation have really just exploded out here in cyber. And I honestly don't see a way to really rein it in unless we change the substructure of tech, maybe get off IP. We've got to do something extremely drastic to try to get a hold of this problem. And adding more layers of security on are not doing it. So if we were offered what seems like a more secure option, listen, you can control your identity and your access. No one can hack it if you put something inside your body and the chips are already there to do that. And um, would people do that? I set this as a cautionary tale that tech is powerful. Tech is invasive. Tech is everywhere. And do you really want it inside your body where either hackers can manipulate it or whoever is running the company behind that tech can manipulate it? In this case, in the book, I show hackers also hacking their own chips and they have to do uh, walk by hacking of other people's chips to get medical care. And they have to align it with fake chips that they make for themselves. Otherwise, if you had type one diabetes and you were a certain blood type, and you couldn't get into hospital for care unless you had some kind of fake identity. And so they had to hack other people's chips for that. What I'm trying to show and, and take away is tech is useful, tech is convenient. It's never going to go away. At the same time, how much do you want it in your life? 
I don't have a Siri in my house except for on my phone. I don't have digital cameras that I can manage remotely on my phone. I've got very little banking on my phone. Um, I'm very compartmentalized on how I use technology because I don't have an IT support group to fix me if I get broken. People need to think about this stuff. And I'm hoping that this book will give them pause. Well, you, you definitely gave me pause and uh, desire to read the book. I mean, there's no okay. question about that. Um, Deb, it's been a pleasure. I mean, we, we had a little teaser and I'm so glad we had an opportunity to to dig deeper. And the first one, we, we actually touched on resilience and some of the things you, you uh, work through personally leading you to this point. So I would encourage everybody to, to catch that episode as well for additional insight into who Deb Bradcliffe is. Uh, but for today, we're going to say thank you. Everybody catch part one of the Hacker Trilogy and uh, look for the other episodes. And, and Deb, hopefully we'll, we'll have you on again soon. Thanks. I want to add that part two is written. It's out for technical fact check and peer review. I'm not sure it yet gives me the tingles that the first book did. It does from the second half on, but I'm trying to get the first half to be more right. I don't know how to put it, but it's very close to getting to the publisher. So we're expecting the, the second book to, to publish around Christmas time. Great time. Perfect timing. No, no better story time than Christmas <laughs> or any holiday, right? Around the fire. Right. Listen to some good stories that make you think. And Sean, as usual, it'll come with a chip. Dear audience, <laughs> yeah, it will come <laughs> with a, a chip. That's a good idea. If, uh, as usual, if we make everybody think a little bit and pause and think about the technology and the society that is at this point all one big thing. There is not a cyber society and a reality society. It's all together. I think we. We succeeded, and for yeah, sure, we, we yeah, had we had a good time. Here. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. Catch thank you all you. next you. time, and uh, find it on itspmagazine.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. <laughs>